now we come to John chapter 19. Um, Before we actually come to chapter 19, though, we have to go back and we see, remember that last week, uh, we saw this exchange between Pilate and Jesus, right? And it's backstage. Uh, The Jews are waiting outside, so you've got the scene. And we saw how as Pilate and Jesus are talking, the whole theme of that whole talk is kingship. Kingship. Now the Jews have accused Jesus of claiming to be their king. And therefore, they're telling Pilate, if he claims to be our king, he's a threat to Rome, so Pilate, you've got to do something about this. It's your job. So Pilate full of scorn, he comes to Jesus backstage and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, and he's not defensive. He's not belligerent. He just answers as the one who has the true authority. He answers with his own question. Pilate, are you saying this from yourself? Do you really want to know if I'm the king. Because if you do really want to know, I will tell you the truth. Or did others tell you about me? In other words, or are you just asking sarcastically because of the charge that they've brought against me? Pilate answers Jesus. Am I a Jew? So why should I care? Why should I personally care? whether you're the king of the Jews. I'm not a Jew, so I don't really personally care if you are the king of the Jews. Should I? And Jesus is about to tell him, yes, you should care. He says, your own nation, the chief priests, delivered you to me, so obviously you can't be the king of the Jews. Pilate got the drift of Jesus' words, and it makes him uncomfortable. Now he then asks, what did you do? You tell me why the Jews have accused you of claiming to be their king. That seems a strange thing to Pilate. That the Jews should come and say, this man claims to be our king. As though they were really too concerned about Roman authority. Jesus answered Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. That's what we sang about when we just sang, Lead on, O King Eternal. The point is Jesus has come to inaugurate the rule of God, not by armies and military and political intrigue and conquest, but rather by raising sinners up out of the dead. That's how the kingdom comes. And the power of Jesus by taking a dead sinner like you and a dead sinner like me And raising us up to life by calling out a people to be his willing subjects. And giving them the true eternal life. Which is righteousness and it's peace and it's joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the life of the kingdom. So that's why the Jews are so mad at Jesus. That's why they're accusing him of claiming to be their king. Because the kingdom he came to bring is not... The kingdom is not the authority, it's not the rule that they want. Which begs the question, what is the rule and the authority in the kingdom that we want? 
Jesus qualifies his connection with the Jews. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so I wouldn't be delivered over to the Jews. What he's saying is, my kingship is not of this world, so it's not limited to one ethnic group, not just to the Jews. And what this means is that even Pilate is called to confess Jesus as his king. Again, you see the scene. You see the Roman governor in his, in his Roman getup, no doubt, showing that he's supposed to be the one in charge. You see the accused prisoner standing before Pilate as the one before who's, who's standing before the bar of Pilate. And yet we see Jesus as the true king. The one who's truly in authority, even over Pilate, and before whom Pilate is called to bow. Only Jesus has the authority to raise Pilate from death to life. Which is going to be ironic because in a moment, Pilate's going to say to Jesus, do you not know that I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus could and would say to Pilate, I only have the authority to raise you, Pilate, from death to life. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, You yourself said I am a king. In other words, you said the words, and the words are correct technically. As far as they go, yes, I'm a king, but let me explain. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. See what he's saying? He's saying, yes, I'm a king, Pilate, but I'm not a king like you are. Pilate wasn't a king, but my authority is not like yours, Pilate. I'm not a king like Caesar or like Herod. My authority resides not in any human appointing me. It's It's not in any office that I have, humanly speaking. It's in the fact that my birth was my coming into the world, Pilate. That's the kind of king I am. My authority resides, Jesus says, in the truth to which I alone can testify because I alone was with the Father and know the truth. Because I am the truth incarnate. That is my kingship. That's my authority. Therefore, Jesus is not the king of the Jews only. What does he say to Pilate? Everyone. And in that everyone, Pilate hears himself included. When Jesus said to Pilate, everyone, I I have this feeling that Jesus said that to Pilate. And in that everyone was, are you one of those, Pilate? Everyone who is of the truth Here's my voice. So we begin to see the nature of Jesus' kingship. His kingship, unlike any other king, is rooted in who he is and his person. Now this is really important for the rest of the sermon. It's rooted in who he is in his person and in what he has come to do in his work as the revelation of the Father, the saving power 
of God. His kingship, therefore, consists in the power and the authority that he has been given to raise the dead to life. That's where his kingship is. To give to sinner like me, like Timothy, to give to me the true life that belongs to the age to come. And what is that life that belongs to the age to come? It's the life of the kingdom in your handout. It's the life of his kingdom. So brothers and sisters, when we understand this, then we can see in the cross the saving revelation of Jesus as king. The king over all kings. In that light, we pick up this morning in chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. Pilate then took Jesus and flogged him. And when the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they were coming to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were giving him, the Greek word is a single Greek word, slaps or blows. The implication seems to be in the face. Notice a couple things about this. John does not elaborate on the brutality of flogging, which is what you'll see if you watch The Passion of the Christ, or no doubt if if you go to see other portrayals in film of the crucifixion. John, and, and for that matter, none of the gospel writers elaborate on the brutality of the flogging. That's not to deny that it was brutal. John simply tells us it happened. Pilate then took Jesus and flogged him. End of story. John does not elaborate on the kind of thorns, how long they might have been, how painful it must have been when they were pressed into Jesus' head. He only tells us that when the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, what does he say? They put it on his head. That's all. He doesn't describe in any great detail the physical abuse that Jesus received from the soldiers. He gives us even less than the synoptics. He tells us only that they were giving him slaps. In the face seems to be the assumption. The physical suffering of Jesus is clear. It's, it's, I'm not saying that it wasn't. Certainly it was. But what John emphasizes most is the soldier's mockery of Jesus as king of the Jews. What did they do? They put a crown, a crown of thorns on his head. They put a, they put a purple robe on him. They did dress up with Jesus. They were coming to him crowned and robed and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Why does John describe that for us? 
Because he means for us to see. In this mockery, even in the sufferings of Jesus here that are already foreshadowing his death, he means for us to see a revelation of Jesus' true kingship. As John portrays for us, and we see this scene, because we are meant to see a scene, and I would suggest to you, not the scene you'll go and see on a movie or a TV show. No, John has given us the scene that he wants us to see in this verse. And it's enough. And as he portrays this scene of abuse and mockery of Jesus, his point is that we bow before Jesus and hail him as our king. Now here's the thing. Not because we feel sorry for him. How often do we come to this passage and we read it and we bow almost out of pity? Brothers and sisters, we don't bow before a king because we feel sorry for him or we have an ounce of pity. I'm not saying we shouldn't have a level of pity for sufferings like this. But that's not John's point. That's why he didn't describe in detail the flogging. It's why he will later simply say, and they crucified him without any detail. Because his point is not the pity. Why do we bow and hail Jesus as our king? Not because it's the least we can do in response for all he did for us. That's maybe very secondary. It is because we see in this portrayal of Jesus being abused and mocked. What do we see in this scene? We see the absolute claims of his lordship. We see the power and the glory of his kingdom. That's what we see. In other words, what the Roman soldiers are utterly blinded to, we see, and here's the point, we see even in and through their blindness. Because it's like this. When they hail Jesus with his crown of thorns and his mock purple robe, we understand, we understand that this is how he is achieving for us life in his kingdom. And so we bow before the man with the crown of thorns dressed up in a purple robe. And we hail him as our king. We come on, we continue in verses 4 to 5. And Pilate came out again. So now we're not backstage anymore. We've come out onto the main stage where all the people are. And he said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out. And look what John repeats. He doesn't say Jesus came out bloodied and and beaten and black and blue. No, he says he came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Now, I have a question for you. 
how, how does Pilate's just bringing Jesus out to the Jews? Let's bring him out. Here he is. How does that show them that he finds no guilt in Jesus? Because what does Pilate say? I'm going to bring him out to you. Here he is. So that you may know I find no guilt in him. Pilate doesn't tell them about any of his conversation with Jesus. He doesn't tell them about what reasoning he, he had by, from talking. He just says, I'm going to bring him out. I'm going to show him to you. And that way you'll know I find no guilt in him. The answer is, he brings him out flogged and beaten and still wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Because if he hadn't left those on, his point would have been ruined. His point would have been lost. Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so you may know I find no guilt in him. In other words, so you may know I find him to be a pathetic, miserable excuse for a king. And that therefore, whatever his claims may be, he is no threat to anyone. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. In other words, look at him. This is the man you're so worried about? This is the man you're telling me is a threat to Rome? I see no king here. Why does John record this? Why? Not so we'll feel pity. Oh, you know, as it were, poor Jesus, I know he is the king and they don't see it. No, not to play on our emotions and so therefore elicit from us a greater love and devotion to Jesus because we feel sorry. No, John describes this so that we will see in the sufferings of Jesus, the power and the glory of his kingdom. That's a way different approach. Historically and traditionally, particularly in Roman Catholic theology, but perhaps almost almost equally so in Protestant theology, the emphasis, the overwhelming emphasis is, is on elaborating on the physical sufferings of Jesus, which is just something we never see in the New Testament. Again, it's not minimizing his physical sufferings. And so what John wants us to be not distracted here unnecessarily, he wants, to, he wants us to see power and glory in the suffering. Pilate mocks Jesus, probably to convince himself that Jesus really is a fraud. And remember where Pilate is. He's in a strange spot. He's afraid. He's got a guilty conscience. And so he mocks Jesus because he, he wants to convince himself Jesus is a fake. He also mocks Jesus in the hopes of securing Jesus' release, because he's afraid. Behold, the man. I see no king here. And so what do we hear? In Pilate's scorn, we hear. In Pilate's unbelief, we hear. 
the call to look upon Jesus in faith. To see in this dressed up Jesus, the king who is over all kings, who has authority to lay down his life so that he might raise you and me up with himself. If that's not power and glory, there's no such thing. When Pilate says, Behold the man, this sorry excuse for a king. What do we hear? Behold the man, the eternal word made flesh. The son of man on whom the angels of God are ascending and descending. The one to whom God has given authority to execute judgment. We listen to Pilate's words and we behold the man and we bow down and we worship and we hail him as our king. All of this depends on you seeing Jesus as John portrays him to us here in this passage. Paul talks about Jesus being publicly portrayed to us as crucified. That's, what, that's the scene that we see this morning. John continues in verse 6. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Now you'll notice all the way through this passage, my point, because it's the point of the text, is that we are going to see the glory of kingship in the sufferings of Jesus. How do we see it now? There's another question for you, and one that I, had, I asked myself, and I was at first a bit stumped. What is it about the sight of Jesus, beaten, dressed as a mock king, that drives the chief priests to a reaction exactly the opposite of what Pilate hoped for, right? Pilate, Pilate brought Jesus out looking like that, in the hopes that they would say that they would somehow be satisfied and he could release Jesus. As it turns out, John makes the point, when they saw him. So Pilate's plan backfired entirely. His plan was, look at him and you'll be satisfied. And in fact, they looked at him and they thought, he must die after they saw him. So what is it specifically about this sight of Jesus? that drives them to cry out for the first time we hear the word crucify. Crucify. And the answer, I think, is very obvious. It's in what we read next. What drove them so mad? Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. Something that he and the Jews knew was impossible. For I find no guilt in him. Remember, Jesus Pilate is not being noble. He's, he hates the Jews, so he's just delighting and causing some trouble because they know they're trying to use him. And he's afraid. And he's guilty. 
The Jews answered Pilate, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Question then, remember, what was it about the sight of Jesus beaten and dressed as a mock king that drives them to say, crucify, crucify? It's, it's this. What they are seeing is for them the final proof of just how blasphemous is the blasphemy of Jesus. Do you see it? it go, it's like this. What they're saying is, this is the man who makes himself out to be the Son of God. This man makes himself out to be equal with God. The very sight of it is blasphemous. Because here he is, standing before a Gentile governor, dressed up as a mock king, and then beaten and mocked by Gentile Roman soldiers. Here is all the more reason why he must die. Because here is all the more proof of his blasphemy. Because he would have us believe that the Son of God could be subjected to such shame and derision, and reproach. Does that make sense to you? Do you see what they're thinking? They see the sight of Jesus, and they see here's the final proof of his blasphemy. Crucify, crucify. They look upon him who's dressed up as a mock king and conclude he's a blasphemer. We look upon him who is dressed up as a mock king. And what do we see? We see the revelation of God in his mighty power to save. Brothers and sisters, we're not just playing games in our mind. We're not pretending to see something that's not there. No, by God's grace, we look at the same Jesus they looked at. And we see the power and the glory of the true king who's over all kings in this world. So we come to verses 8 to 9. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement that Jesus made, himself out to be the son of God, he became more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Two things here. First of all, why is Pilate afraid? Partly because he's superstitious. He's a pagan. But John sees the main reason he's afraid is because he's been confronted with the authority of Jesus. And so, in Pilate's fear, what do we see? What do you see? I see the one who has the authority to take away all my fears. 
Pilate's afraid. He's afraid because he sees this man whose authority claims his obedience. How much more then should we who have come in faith and obedience see in his authority what takes away all our fears? In Pilate's fear, we see the one who has the authority to reconcile us to God. So we don't come into judgment, but have passed out of death into life. Remember, Jesus already answered Pilate three times. We saw that last week. And every time Jesus answered Pilate, he answered just enough and just right in such a way that was perfectly suited to Pilate's condition. Now, when Pilate asked Jesus a fourth question, Jesus answered him three times. Then Pilate asked him a fourth question in which he was being sarcastic, as he was before, but this time he didn't want any answer. He said, I'll ask you a question, but I don't, I don't want an answer. And he left Jesus before he could even answer. What is truth? Now Pilate asks basically the same question. Now he's back in backstage, and here we are again, and Pilate does round two. And he asks him the same question, basically, where are you from? Which is to say, what is truth, right? Where are you from? And this time, Pilate actually wants an answer. But Jesus won't answer. What changed? What happened? Well, as we saw last week, Jesus never gives what is holy. What is holy to dogs. The point is not to insult Pilate. The point is to emphasize the holiness of the truth about Jesus. Jesus never throws pearls before swine. And so Jesus will not needlessly expose the truth about the incarnate revelation of his father. And I put that phrase not just to have a bunch of fancy words, but because here's the thing. You know what Jesus cares about? Jesus does not care about himself. He's not like, Pilate, don't you dare talk to me like that. Don't you dare think about me like that. No, Jesus' point is, he is the incarnate revelation of his father. And so Jesus will not needlessly expose the truth about himself because he's the revelation of his father to Pilate's scorn and contempt. So I want to ask you this question then, and you think about it, how would you answer? What do we see in the silence of Jesus? What do we see in it? The point here is not meekness. That's secondary. It's there in a roundabout way. Because where, where do we see the meekness of Jesus? Well, he refused to exercise his divine prerogatives, like calling down myriads of angels, asking his father for 12 legions of angels, right? So he was meek in that he never used that, that prerogative. 
The meekness of Jesus is seen in the fact that while being reviled, he did not revile in return. But see, the point here isn't just Jesus isn't reviling in return. The point here is he's not even answering at all. Right? So the point here isn't just meekness. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Well, Jesus could have answered Pilate without uttering threats. Right? But he won't even answer him. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So then I ask you again, what do we see in the silence of Jesus? We see not his meekness, at least not primarily, but rather the authority of that one by whose word Pilate has already been judged. We hear in Jesus' silence, and I would suggest to you, Pilate also heard uh, with less clarity than we, we have, but he, Pilate knew the meaning of Jesus' silence. We hear in Jesus' silence his answer to Pilate's question. Where are you from? And in the silence of Jesus, we hear, I have proceeded forth and come from God. In the silence of Jesus, then, we see once again the power and the glory of his kingdom. But that's not what Pilate wants to see. Verses 10 to 11. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority. That's a feminine noun. Okay. You would have no authority over me unless it, it is neuter, is not feminine, so it does not refer to the authority. Jesus is not saying you would have no authority over me unless that authority had been given you. That may be true. It's not Jesus' point. You would have no authority over me unless it And in the Greek, it would be much more clear. Unless it had been given you, in other words, unless this situation, unless this whole set of circumstances had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you, Caiaphas, has the greater sin. Now, now, we're ready to see the glory of kingship in the sufferings of Jesus. Where do we see it here? Well, first of all, let's be clear that Jesus isn't trying to make Pilate feel better. Isn't that kind of where we go at first? We think, oh man, I guess if I, Jesus just told me someone else has the greater sin, I might pat myself on the back and go off feeling good about myself. That's obviously not Jesus' point. Neither is is Jesus trying to gain favor with Pilate. Like, well, if I say this, maybe he'll go easy on me. Clearly, that's not what he's saying. In fact, what Jesus says is very disconcerting to Pilate. He's simply telling Pilate that his authority to release Jesus or to crucify Jesus would be irrelevant. 
If God had not decreed, Jesus should be standing before him now. Basically, he's telling Pilate, at some fundamental level, Pilate, you're irrelevant. For this reason, because Pilate's role is reactive, and it was God himself who handed this situation, put this situation on his plate as a Roman judge, it is Caiaphas who has actively delivered Jesus to Pilate who has the greater sin. Let's put it like this. Pilate will be guilty of sin. Look, look, Jesus has just said, it's Caiaphas who has the greater sin, which means that Pilate is still guilty of sin. And why is it that Caiaphas will be guilty of the greater sin? The reason in your handout, the reason for this, is not to be found in any relative goodness of Pilate. See, Pilate didn't hear Jesus saying, Pilate, you're a better man than Caiaphas. That's not what Pilate heard. Jesus, Jesus didn't say to Pilate, you're a better man than Caiaphas. Jesus said he's guilty of the lesser sin. And that's not because Pilate is a better man. The reason for this is the sovereignty of God. Therefore, the reason is Jesus' own submission to his Father's will. When Pilate gives the word to crucify Jesus, as he will, what will we see in that word that he gives? We see the Father's plan coming to fulfillment as Jesus pursues that plan in perfect obedience to his Father. What an example Jesus has set for us, brothers and sisters. What an example of obedience. We see in the sentence that Pilate pronounces, which is the lesser sin. We see in that lesser sin the sovereignty of God. It's only lesser because God is sovereign. And so when he pronounces the sentence, we see in that sentence the authority of Jesus and the power and the glory of his kingdom. But Pilate still tries to find a way to calm his fear and soothe his conscience. We read in verses 12 to 14, As a result of this, Pilate kept seeking to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Sabbath. I'm I'm adding a few words in there to give the sense. It was the day of preparation for the Sabbath, Friday. The Sabbath of the Passover week, which was a high Sabbath. It was about the sixth hour, about nine o'clock in the morning, Friday morning. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. That's not how he said it. 
Why does John record these words? Because he means for us to hear. In these mocking words, God's own overruling testimony to the truth. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, we hear that word a lot, born again, that phrase. Well, here's what it means. Unless you are born a second time, unless you are born anew into the life of the kingdom, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The rule of the Messiah. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh. That which has been born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born from above into the life of the kingdom. But here's the question. How does God give to us this kingdom life? How are we born into this kingdom life? This eternal life. By what means? Well, if we continue in Jesus' words to Nicodemus, his last words to him were these. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, exalted on a cross. So that whoever believes in him believes will in him have eternal life. What's eternal life? It's the life of the kingdom. And so in John chapter 3, we see how the only way to enter into the kingdom is to look to the king, exalted, on a cross. It's in and through his cross work that Jesus has achieved for you and for me eternal life, life lived under his rule, life lived under his kingship. And so we see in the cross the saving revelation of Jesus as king. Brothers and sisters, The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is more powerful than men. Who would have ever thought? It's in this light then that we go on to read in verses 15 to 18. So they cried out after Jesus said, Behold, uh, Pilate said, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! 
Crucify him. But we here, lift him up. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? But we here, Shall I lift up your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then delivered him over to them to be crucified. But we hear he delivered him over to them to be lifted up. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. But we hear in fulfillment of Jesus' own words in chapter 8, there they lifted him up. And with him they crucified two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. John does not elaborate on the horrors of crucifixion, which is why I believe which is why I will not watch the Passion. I believe it misleads. John doesn't elaborate on the horrors of crucifixion. He simply tells us that it happened. There, they crucified him. The shame and the suffering of the cross is assumed. But it's not what John emphasizes. What does John want us to see in the cross? He wants us to see the lifting up of Jesus. What John wants us to see in the cross is the authority and the rule of Jesus, the power and the glory of his kingdom. Do you see it? Are you seeing it this morning? Remember what Jesus said in chapter 13. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. Remember what Jesus prayed in chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. That the Son may glorify you. And so John continues in verse 19. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Every other time that expression is used, it was written. And in the Greek, it is written and it was written is the same exact aspect. It's the same exact form of the word. So you could translate it was written. It is written. But every other time John uses that expression, it is or it was written, it always introduces the word of God given through his prophets. Just to get the full effect, John 2. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. 
as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him. When John introduces the inscription on the cross with these words, and he, he, he uses these words almost absolutely, he says, it was written. What he means for us to see is that Pilate is functioning as God's own prophetic mouthpiece. Much like Caiaphas in chapter 11. It was written. Where? On the cross. Jesus the Nazarene. The king. The king of the Jews. So, this is the testimony of God himself. When his son was lifted up on the cross. And it's not God saying, this is the king of the Jews. Doesn't, he's not the king here, but you'll see one day. No, it's God saying, here, in my son, lifted up on a cross, is the king. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Hebrew, the language of the country, the common people in Judea, and just the language of Judea. Latin, the language of the Romans and the Roman soldiers. Greek, the language of the world. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. We see in the cross the saving revelation of Jesus' kingship, of what his kingship truly is even as the resurrected Savior. We see even in in the cross itself, the power and the glory of his kingdom. We see him lifted up. That's what we see. And because that's what we see, By his grace. Therefore we have in him. Eternal life. By now I hope. That when you hear the expression eternal life. You don't think life that goes on forever and ever and ever. There's another 
life that goes on forever and ever and ever too. Eternal life is the life of the kingdom. So we have been raised because we see on the cross Jesus lifted up because that's what we see. We have been raised out of death into that life of obedience to him as our king that's lived in the power of the Holy Spirit and that belongs to the age to come. Let us then live that life today and this week and always. Ephesians chapter 5. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of that light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving in the daily living of your life what is pleasing to the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for opening our eyes to see what a miracle thank you that we see in the cross that we see in the dressed up Jesus with the crown and a purple robe and mocking soldiers hailing him as king and Pilate's mocking words And the people saying he must die when they see him dressed up. And in this whole scene and all that just happened in this whole thing, we have seen by your grace the glory and the power of his kingdom. We have seen him as our king. And in seeing him as our king, We know that we have eternal life. Let us then, O Lord, live that life daily. Let us discern what the things that are pleasing to you, what things are righteous and good and acceptable. Let us do these things because we have been purchased by the King himself. We have been raised from death to life. Father, thank you that we can come to the table and see in this bread and this cup the sign of him lifted up for us and for our sakes. In Jesus' name, amen.